Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Achtung, Achtung. Yes, uh, we're going with a German uh, for this very, very special Thursday edition of We Have Ways of Making You Talk. With me, I'm at home here, sat on my sofa, James Holland, in what looks like a restyled barn. And yep. he's got some... That's uh, exactly what green, it is. That is exactly olive what green, it is. Olive green cosplay for us. And we are very, very fortunate <laughs> to be joined by Professor Daniel Todman. Welcome, Daniel. Hi. Is it Dan, Daniel, Dan? Uh, Dan. Dan. Welcome, Dan. Now, um, uh, we really should... Those... Ow, can I just say, we really should have just yeah. said danger, danger today. All right. Okay. Danger, danger. There you are. You're happy now? Yeah. Well, you know, we're talking about <laughs> okay, Britain's good. war, aren't we? Yes. So, Dan, you, um, have, well, Imminent to be Published is your second volume of yep. uh, Britain's War. The first volume, uh, incredibly well received. Um, uh, an, ast- an astonishing book um, that my mother, uh, not so long ago, said, have you read this? It's it's very long, but it's awfully good. And I've just got, I've just got to, I can't remember where she just got to. So I did not know that all that was going on at that point. Um, uh, and uh, and I've been very fortunate to, to have read the second volume. Um, it must be a relief to get to the end of the Second World War. Yeah, it's felt like a, it's felt like a long time. It's you know, it's uh, <laughs> the two books cover thirty-seven to forty-seven. So yeah. uh, and it's taken the best part of two decades to write. So this has been a big chunk of my life. <laughs> Goodness me! So uh, a conscious. I mean, that's the first the first thing we should maybe flag up for for people who don't know um, either volume. Uh, 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 well, they don't know the first volume, and they're soon to know the second. Is that you start in nineteen thirty-seven and you finish in nineteen forty-seven? Now, obviously. Um, the, the, when the Second World War actually starts, or whatever you want to, the umbrella term Second World War, after all, actually starts is 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 a thing that you you can argue about because it doesn't start for the argument doesn't start for the Soviet Union until uh, July of nineteen forty one, although probably and in Japan and China, you know, blah 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 blah. But why did you decide? Because it's because the other thing is this is Britain at war. This is not a history of the Second World War in itself, is it? No, no. So it's 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 focused very specifically uh, on Britain and its its empire. Uh, but by their nature, those are global uh, things. So you have to think about um, what's going on around the planet. Um, but also, I was very conscious that you can't really understand what's happening in 1939 if you start uh, with at the moment the war breaks out. Yeah, uh, that actually you have to start a bit earlier. Uh, and similarly, at the other end of the conflict, if you just stop in August 1945, you don't understand the um, the implications of the war or how they're playing out. So you need to take it to at least 1947. Uh, so that that gets you to the British departure from India. 
uh, but also the onset of the Cold War, uh, the the start of what will become the Marshall Plan, uh, so that you can see how things have changed. How did you pick the end? The end, though, because because you know Cyprus. Aiden, uh, uh, you know, uh, basically to go through my father's military career, um, post-war, 50s, 50s and 60s military career, you could, because, the, the, because Britain's Second World War, I mean, arguably, is still going on. Uh, the, the, the way people talk about the, the war and the way it sits in culture, it's still, it's still incredibly present in a way it may not be in, in, in other participants. How did you pick 1947? Uh, well, two reasons. First, I think, uh, actually, you can see the shift. Britain's post-war... So the period of uncertainty uh, that you get right at the, the when the fighting stops about what will happen next. People are very uncertain about how's the world going to be reshaped. Actually, that period doesn't last very long. So I think by the time you get to the end of 1947, you can see the direction things are going yeah. to go in. Uh, so that's one reason. And the other reason is, uh, unlike James, I don't have the mental or physical strength to write three big volumes about the Second World War. Uh, so I just, uh, for me and... Uh, uh, He's only yeah. written two. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's got another one to come, though. <laughs> yeah. I know, I'm, I'm dreading it. <laughs> uh, the books, compre- books are comprehensive, though, aren't they? Because, the, 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 you know, uh, James, is, James, you're very much uh, the, uh, the, the military end of things, really. Although your, book, your books t- t- take in the, 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 the bigger the biggest scale. But you're, I mean, the, the thing I was really struck by um, with the second volume, uh, the thing that really caught my imagination was Britain interfering with the tungsten price in Spain. Yeah, for, that's for amazing. It's absolutely uh, uh, brilliant. Uh, uh, and just, I have just, to say, just, can just, I just pitch in here? Because I think this is the thing that I just think is so fascinating. It's that, that it's that broader part of the war. It's that, that what I would categorise into the operational level. It's the nuts and bolts of how it all works, how you fit it together. You know, and, and that what you get very clearly from the books is that sense of Britain's position in the world, which of course is completely different then as to what it is now and I think one of the reasons why everyone has been so down on Britain and Britain's war effort in the last 40-50 years uh, in, in that kind of sort of declinist view is is because people find it so hard to kind of equate the Britain of, of, of 1937 to 47 with the Britain of the 70s, 80s and, and, and 90s uh, and obviously Britain changes a lot in that decade that you're writing about Dan but it is still a very, very different Britain then to, to what it is now, isn't it? That's right. I mean, it's a it's a country which can uh, exercise a huge amount of international leverage. Uh, I, there's a paradox there because it's it's incredibly militarily powerful, um, particularly by the time you get to 1944. But at the same time, it's experienced a really rapid decline in its international power relative to the United States and the Soviet Union. So I think those two things go along at the same time yes uh, well that's the that's the really interesting thing isn't it because because the boats all float don't they and uh, uh, at the same time as the as the as the those three economies turn their war effort full bore to dealing yeah. with um, and of course the the, the 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 problem the germans encounter is that is that they're uh, in 1939 they are running at what 25 percent of gdp on something like that on armaments mm. and the british are still on four or something so the slack that, that, that a similar sized economy, and that, that we're just talking about the, the British economy rather than British imperial economy. That the slack in the British economy is is considerable, but the slack in the American economy and the Soviet economy it will will obviously override any any effort that Britain can come to. So you do get that you do get that sort of 
leveling up, I suppose, is the, 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 the current expression. Well, it's that extraordinary ability to, to co-opt uh, American power, particularly American industrial power. And I think that's one of the things that really struck me about writing the first volume was that actually... You know, of course, we concentrate on Britain's uh, dollar reserves running out, the, the the dependence on America from 1941. But actually, the amount that Britain spends in the United States before that point... It's absolutely is phenomenal, really, isn't it? Yeah, and, and an awful lot of the, the speed with which the US can come into the war uh, from the end of 1941 is dependent on that investment that's already yeah. taken place. You know, you're, and you're absolutely right, because Roosevelt is able to manoeuvre from this incredibly isolationist, inward-looking, kind of don't-spend-anything-on-defence approach to this total political vault fast, um, where he, you know, he's saying, I want... you know billions and I want to be producing 50,000 aircraft a year which is just it's just extraordinary but the reason he's able to do that is because he's saying you know we're going to get rich on it and we're going to make it for the allies so that we don't have to fight and, and that, decisions- that's how he and that's how he is able to kind of convince the corridors of of Washington and, and the great American people but those decisions are made in in night in early 1940 aren't they because aircraft take nine months to build May and June. May and June, I, I think, is sort of ground zero for Britain and for America because obviously we've, we've you know, we've, we've had the defeat in France. The army's been left, the, the equipment's been left behind. It's kind of, okay, let's start again. From Britain's point of view, he's got to kind of think, okay, well, we, we're never planning on having a large army. We've never traditionally had a large army. You know, the French were going to do that bit. Now we've got to create an army. What's that army going to look like? It's going to be 55 divisions. What America has to do is say, okay, we've had almost no military whatsoever apart from a bit of naval power. Um, we've now got to kind of crank it up big time but it is british money that enables roosevelt to kick start that armament process so that 18 months on because it's, a, it's, a, it's an 18th month process it's it's six months to to get the machine tools made and everything set up it's another six months to get everyone into gear and start producing stuff and it's another six months before you know the factories are starting to churn out anything of any substantial number and what is really really intriguing is that those decisions are made in kind of May and June 1940 in Washington and 18 months on conveniently is when Japan then attacks Pearl Harbor <laughs> and they enter the war. It's hey, a coincidence. Steady on. Steady <laughs> if, on. if you were to go back to London, I think one of the things that uh, the Chamberlain government doesn't get enough credit for, uh, there's plenty of things to criticise it about, but that actually that decision to spend loads of money on uh, aircraft engine factories in the US happens before the crisis in Europe in yes. May 1940. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, if you think of the uh, the atomic bomb project as being one of the, you know, the big things that the Americans spend money on during the Second World War, not the most expensive thing they do, but a very expensive project, Britain spends the same amount of money in dollars in the US before uh, on aircraft factories yeah. before uh, America comes into the war. Yeah. So that's a, I mean, that's a really big well, the, uh, and the, head start. The, the British government take on all the, inherit all the French uh, contracts, don't yeah. they, when France falls. So, so, uh, and and that's just as a matter of course, and that there isn't because obviously the Americans don't want to lose those contracts. So they, yeah, yeah, of course, those contracts are still open. Rather than, oh dear, the French will default. We're going to have to shut this capacity down. So, so, uh, it it, it is re- it is really interesting that 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 because of course the 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 story we tell ourselves is Britain on its own. Uh, that that in nineteen in the summer of nineteen forty. The, the, I mean, the imagery of the few makes the RAF not sound like this enormous uh, integrated 
muscular um, uh, wing of national defence. Because after all, the RAF, you know, the pilot, there's, there's one pilot and then 20 blokes to make that all happen. And so that, that actually what we're talking about is in, the, the Britain's incredible muscle at the start of the war that kind of gets overlooked. Yes, but also I think uh, the ability to look forward and yep. say however weak Britain seems in 1939 and 1940, it's going to get stronger uh, and by the time you get to 1942, that's when, you know, in terms of the plans there are at the start of the war, that's when you might be able to launch the decisive offensive if the German economy hasn't broken by that point. Yeah, which and of I think course that, it doesn't quite. So No, but I think that that, um, that ability to look forward with confidence, again, is, is almost too easily overlooked from a British point of view now. You know, so, because we know the end of the war. Mm. Right? So yeah, yeah. the idea that you can you can think... Uh, actually, if it takes a long time, but this is but this is a thing we've talked about before about um, that, that after Dunkirk that there it is remarkable that the army is able to sort of dust itself down and go all right well okay that didn't that didn't go very well how do we beat these people what what have we got to do that the that the government systems that you know the war office the air ministry they're all able to do that as well rather than rather than I mean because there are compelling reasons to throw in the towel in. In the summer of 1940. Oh, sure. I don't know. 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 the don't know. I 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 do that, that's the thing, isn't yes, it? That, yes, yeah. yes, that, that's the big thing. And I, but I just think, <laughs> I think 19, you know, second half of May 1940 is just this, this just total shock. Everyone's so completely discombobulated because no one could see this coming. And so it's, it's so shocking. It, it, it's just, and it's, and it's making people kind of not see reason. And I think one of the, you know, we, we've talked about it before, but I think one of the things that's so so intriguing is is that the man who's supposed to be so reasonable and sensible and and have the soundest um, head on um, on any shoulders in the country, in Lord Halifax, is the one who's kind of not thinking rationally, particularly, and the one who's supposed to have a very very dodgy reputation in terms of his judgment is the one who is actually thinking clearly, which of course is is, is Churchill. And I would also agree with you, Dan, that I think I think um, Chamberlain is much maligned, and and a lot of it is is extremely unfair um, one thing i would say is 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 when you were writing your the the two books did you start with a kind of the, the sort of the acorn of a thesis or did you just think i'm going to look at this and i'm going to i mean how, how did how did it evolve that you started to kind of think actually what needs to be done here is is a much more in-depth examination of how britain conducted her war I mean, was that was that always the intention, and you didn't know what the what your conclusions were going to be, or or did you already have a pretty good idea of of where you were where you were oh, heading that's a good, with this? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so I started off knowing that I wanted to tell a story that connected the military, the social, the political, the economic. Um, and actually, that comes out of my my uh, previous life as a First World War historian. Right. Um, and there's a fantastic book about the First World War, Britain and the First World War, The Myriad Faces of War by Trevor Wilson, uh, which is a book that I loved when I was uh, first studying the First World War. Mm. And it takes exactly that approach. And I was very conscious that there wasn't an equivalent for Britain's Second World War. Uh, so I thought that was the germ of the idea. Uh, and then I was very fortunate to have an editor at Penguin, um, Simon Winder, who understood that yes. uh, 
this this would take big books. So what he said was, there's no point doing a short book about um, Britain in the Second World War because you'll just it'll just be a list of things that happened. Uh, if you want to actually say things that are interesting, you've got to unpack uh, a lot of the alternatives. That's one of the interesting things, particularly about that middle bit of the war, mm. is all that planning for things that didn't happen. Uh, so if you're going to explore all yeah. of that, you need space to do it. Um, and then that's how what was originally going to be one book turned into two uh, very big volumes. Um and I knew that uh, I knew some key points I wanted to make, um, particularly about how we think about uh, whether Britain was strong or not. What yep. does strong mean? Yep. Um, but also that you know there's, there are those two uh, narratives about the war, aren't there, that are common in popular culture. One is 1940 as this moment of defiance. Yes. Um, so I wanted to unpack what does that mean exactly? How How is it that Britain could be defiant then? Yep. And the other is about the end of the war. And was it really a victory or was it somehow taken away from Britain? Was did was Britain adequately recompensed for what it had sacrificed? Uh, and in both cases, I just wanted to make those... Uh, to make readers feel that they could come to their own judgment about those two things. So uh, I'm not a big believer yeah. in historians telling people what everything you think is a myth, uh, recast it. Because no. it's a bit like that. Um, You've got to show, don't tell. That's the point. Yeah, well, it's, well, it's, it's well, like it also, that Gary Larson cartoon of what we say and what what dogs hear, right? You know, bad dog yeah, Fido, yeah. bad dog Fido, and what Fido <laughs> hears is Fido, 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 yeah, Fido. Yeah, yeah. So, so don't press the button that says myth. Just show to people that what what you might think is something quite simple, and we live in a world where people often think that things are simple, uh, is more complicated, and you can think about it from different directions. Well, mm. I completely agree with that. I'm, I'm, I think it's one of the really interesting things is, is unpicking it. And, you know... You, you and I both well know that that a lot of the narrative histories of the Second World War they 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 really do just focus on the strategic overview and what's going on at the coalface. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick... From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? 
Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. What was the shipping cycle for getting tanks from from uh, the US to uh, Alexandria for the for the Alamein for the Second Battle of Alamein? Because there's 400 Shermans are delivered, of course, to that battle, which then gives Montgomery this preponderance of armor that that, that up to that point and they're and they're brand new and they're funky and all that cutting edge. What what's the what's the you know how long does that all take? Because the, you're looking at a you're looking at Long range planning that, like like James says, make, makes your head hurt. But that's 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 quite quick, right? <laughs> uh, 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 those shipments because that decision's taken what June, July, yeah, uh, and they're they're in place uh, October. Yeah. So uh, you know that's that's quite a a, a quick decision, a movement of tanks. Mm. So if things need to be done in an emergency, it's possible to reorder shipping in all sorts of ways. One of the reasons that uh, uh, everybody at the Ministry of Shipping finds Churchill such an infuriating boss is because he will sometimes say this, this has to happen now but of course every time you do that you disturb everything else uh, and it's it's the it's the long term um, system of convoys that you've got to plan out assembling the shipping, uh, building them up to transport stuff either from the the US um, uh, across to the UK or from the UK down and around the Cape up through the Red Sea. Uh, that takes a long time just to get all the ships in one place. It's not just yeah. the voyages by themselves. Um, and the other problem and, you've got is you've got this inefficiency that suddenly yeah. with a convoy, you, you know, in in the good old days of individual shippings, individual sailings, you know. One comes in on Tuesday morning, another on Wednesday, um, Wednesday afternoon, then on Thursday. So your stevedores, your 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 guys, your dock workers—they're all kind of. There's just a constant flow. What happens with convoys is suddenly you've got 42 ships arriving in Liverpool, all at once, <laughs> and then in between you've got nothing. So it's it's a really inefficient way of loading and unloading. But it's the, obviously it's the only way you can do it that will enable you to be safe. And yeah. you know that is um, just a, that's just a whole nother logistical headache and time constraint that you've got to factor into your planning well yeah and I, th- I mean in some ways i think trying to reinforce um, malaya and singapore in the spring of 42 is a better example than um trying to get tanks across for for second element yeah. it because it's the uh, you know because you've got to go around the cape it takes you know it's a month cycle before you can get anything to the middle east so that are you going to go to rejig something from the middle east which you were expecting to use either to center the soviet union to keep the soviets in the fight or to f- uh, follow up on rommel after he's been defeated yeah, yeah. Uh, in the winter battle are you going to send all of that out to the far east now if you do that where are the ships going to come from to do it you know so you know it only takes uh, uh, a displacement somewhere in the system yeah. for the knock on effects to be really huge struck in the first book there's the stuff about the refrigeration ships which of course um uh, uh, are really important for the, the, the for getting you in peacetime used for getting meat from new zealand to, to the uk essentially and they become incredibly important because of the, the size and all that sort of thing and and so they have to be what on earth you do with these ships and where you fit them in becomes actually a thing that that that, that, that dominates thinking at one point and then you've got the business of ports being attacked ship damage and so you may have a big fleet but a shipping fleet but at times it's it 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 can't like james says because a convoy 
congestion. It can't be used particularly effectively. So you've got to plan around all that. And this is before we get to, you know, uh, were cruiser tanks any good? And you know, the six pounder, uh, the, the yeah, stuff, yeah. the stuff that, the stuff that often, that, that, that I mean, I, I, I love our listeners dearly, but we do get asked a lot of kind of those kind of questions where people get hung up on tank mm-hmm. types and all that sort of thing. When you, when you zoom out and this, what do we do? How do we get this refrigeration ship from one end of the world <laughs> to the other at the moment we need it? It's it, it, it's but sort it, of fantastic. But it also makes you think about two things. One is is what is the experience of uh, British British servicemen in particular? That for most of them, for the majority of the war, their war will start with a lengthy voyage aboard ship. Yes, and that's quite that's quite distinctive to the British and American Canadian Australian experience. Yeah. in a way that it's not for the Russian and German experience. Yeah. Right. So this, these aren't uh, servicemen yeah. who are getting into battle by train, right? at least yeah. not at the beginning of their journeys. But the other thing is what actually affects the British home front, that actually the biggest falls in imports that you'll see during the war are not caused because uh, you know there's been some unexpected sinkings by U-boats. They're caused because the US uh, quartermasters want to send a bit more across the Atlantic or yeah. they need some more supplies to send. Or the Tunisia campaign has gone on a bit longer than yeah. it was exactly. intended, you know, which is, is also really interesting. And I think one of the, one of the most fascinating fascinating decisions that's made out of the Casablanca conference in January 1943 is a decision to end the Battle of the Atlantic once and for all because until you've done that it's really really hard to plan a major operation because you don't know how much shipping you've got coming through if you if you know that 98% of your shipping's coming through you can plan properly for operation husky or more importantly in the case of the allies Operation Overlord, but it's very, very difficult to plan for something like that. If, if you know, you're getting a, a convoy of forty-two ships and fourteen of them are being sunk, you know, so there is this, there is this huge necessity to sort out the Atlantic once and for all, so that you can properly plan, because the planning of shipping is so complicated. But, but it's just true, it's true enough. But because the other thing to remember about Casablanca is what the British do there, because they want so much from the Americans at that conference, is agree to do all sorts of things with no, uh, paying no, no yeah. account to the shipping that they've got available at all. And <laughs> it's only later, only in March '43, that they say, "Oh, actually, uh, there aren't enough ships to do this." So all those things we promised you, sorry, we can't do them. Yeah. Uh, so I, th- I, I find that's that fascinating combination between you, you're astonished that anybody could plan all of this in the days before uh, computers, yeah, yeah. yeah, Excel, yeah. and at the same time time lots of it's done without without the planning you just make, yeah. make the decision and then make it work afterwards but, well and, and the british do play fast and loose with the americans sometimes because uh, 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 again from the first book i was struck by the thing about the the, the grain that, that at one point uh, we have so much grain uh, that we've got out of the americans it spoils and that is never used and so the Americans, after that, start thinking. Well, I, d- I don't know if we can really trust your estimates on food anymore. That you, that that you you know you've been you've wasted shipping space. You've you've, you've taken the Mickey really. I think that's really really interesting. That that there is a, there, there's some gaming going on by the British government throughout the war of the Americans. I'm, I'm nodding away frantically, which is a terrible thing to do on a podcast. Yeah, yeah, it? not you're not helping uh, me. Uh, yeah, so so I mean I think. Um, I think it's often it's very hard to work out in those negotiations at all different levels uh, who exactly is playing who. And of course, these are uh, these are negotiations in which often you know, particular Anglo-American personalities will find that they get on very well and cooperate together. Uh, but as as kind of state institutions, uh, they're allies who are also jealous of each other's power, yep. uh, who want to get something out of the you know, the, the the other uh, the other institution. Um, 
And and there's quite oftentimes you think, well, all these different multiple bits of information that are being passed back and forward. Uh, I don't think that's something where you can call it right or wrong. But very often what you think when you, you read through those accounts is this is about really uh, devious use of power. Yep. And that's something that I think I find fascinating. Mm. You know, I think well, stories that run run at all different levels you, is how, how do you use... This is a war that gives people a lot of power. Well, because you could argue that one of the American war aims is to dismantle the British Empire. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, I would I would argue that that that, that and that, that the opportunity comes along. It's all those uh, uh, British holdings that are, that are part of Lend Lease that get gobbled up. that have to be handed over as part of Lend Lease, and then obviously bases and uh, and all that. the bases are the things people talk about. But but there's British companies that the Americans say, well, you're going to have to you're going to have to hand that over. I'm afraid, and that's all. That you know, the, the the thumb screws are applied, which I think is really really interesting. But people talk about the special relationship. Yeah, fine, but but um, but that's that's what I think is so fascinating about the second half of the war, and particularly forty three to to forty seven, is the extent to which uh, the British are fighting to hold on to what power they've got, uh, and that and that that's really hard. Yeah, uh, and that it involves. Um, giving concessions when they have to, uh, or using using something that they can offer to the Americans because they're useful in different ways. Yeah, and I think that's actually what makes that that rearguard action is in some ways tremendously successful uh, because of the amount of power that Britain is able to retain. Yeah. I mean, it, it retain in a very different world in which uh, it's very dependent on American economic support. And that's what you see. That's why I think it's so important to carry the story to 47. Yeah. You see all that martial aid about to head across the Atlantic. Uh, and yet, it's not been the kind of catastrophic decline which you might have predicted earlier in the war. Uh, or that you would have seen, I think, uh, had Britain come to a settlement with Germany in 1940. Then yeah. then the curve downwards would have been much a lot steeper. Harder, yeah. harder and faster, yeah. Yeah. I still think one of the things that's most I find repeatedly um, incredible, though, is is certainly from the sort of military point of view, and to a certain extent political point of view as well, is actually just how well they they rub together. I mean, you know, successive historians have, have continually repeated the kind of rampant anglophobia and Americophobia of, of leading commanders and stuff, and they always kind of pick out pattern and so on. Uh, um, but actually, I think what, what is amazing is that, you know, they are coalition partners. They're not, you know, ironically, they're not actual proper allies. And actually, when you think about it, what's remarkable is how well they get on and how well they cooperate as coalition partners to, to get what they need done, done. And I think one of the things that I'm increasingly convinced about is that, by and large, Germany makes doesn't make the best use of its meagre resources. Whereas, by and large, and you can obviously argue the toss over individual things, but on the whole, Britain and America prioritise their, their assets really, really well, I think. And I think that's one of the big factors why, ultimately, they're so successful and why, ultimately, at the end of the war, despite having fought this incredibly tough, brutal, violent war, their casualty figures are so comparatively few compared to the other main combatants. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, militarily, they get on incredibly well. Uh, and it's a good example of, you know, what you were talking in terms of um, previous accounts being land-centric. Uh, if you look at the Navy and the Air Forces, uh, Britain and America are actually, you know, the level of cooperation there is, is very high, the level of effectiveness is very high. Uh, politically, 
Yes, I think there's the a politics. much bigger difference, and particularly as you get to the end of the war, one of the things yeah. I think is interesting is there's, you know, as David Edison would say, there's this internationalist moment during the war when everybody feels they're part of this great worldwide alliance. Uh, but when you get to 44, 45, as the end of the war comes in sight, nationalist feeling grows not just in the US, but also in the yeah. UK. Uh, yeah. And that's what a lot of the texts that we have that tell us about how brilliant Britain was, everything that it did by itself, they all come from that moment in 1944 well, when yes. Britain's trying to convince the Americans Give us. We've sacrificed all this stuff. Give us some aid. Yeah. Well, because you, you get that, you do get that shift from a, a, an imperial tenor to the British war effort in 1940-41-42, and then then Singapore falls. That's the moment of imperial total nervous breakdown and crisis, and then politics in the UK shifts to this na- na- nationalist thing. Mm. And so Labour, who've been anti-imperialist, they pivot to nationalism because or, or well, nationalism's too strong, a nationalist way of looking at things. And then the Tories have to as well and so you end up in a completely different political space of 45 and and you've got the maneuvering going on of basically Churchill being sidelined on the macro level Churchill being sidelined by Roosevelt at um, meeting with Stalin and and eventually actually kind of frozen out almost completely and that's emblematic really of of, because you say militarily we get on very well but the the, the high level politics Britain's very much squeezed hard uh, one of the interesting things about writing the second volume, because I didn't, I don't have a huge amount of sympathy for Churchill, and I'm always quite keen to stick the boot in to him when I can, <laughs> because because uh, uh, I'm contrary like that. Yeah. Um, and that was definitely a theme of the first book. But in the second book, actually, I had a lot more sympathy for somebody grappling with these these tremendous um, global problems as he sees it, uh, and how intractable they are. And I think particularly when you look at what's happening in 1944, I mean, what's what's astonishing is that he's not only looking forward to the uh, the invasion of Northwest Europe, but actually that he's he's having to grapple with the chiefs of staff uh, and his economic advisors about the return to empire. What's that going to look like? Is it going to be possible about strategy in the Far East, about some kind of economic settlement that might allow reconstruction after the war? And whatever you think about him as a, a strategist, as a grand strategist, so as somebody who could think about how international power was wielded, uh, he was quite he was quite acutely perceptive and willing to be persistent in trying to defend British power. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Dan. Um, uh, uh, that's the end for today. But we're going to carry. We're, there's no stopping us talking. We'll be back next Thursday with more with uh, Daniel Todman. Yeah, Dan, uh, that was absolutely fantastic. It was really thanks for listening. Thanks for coming on. Cheerio. Cheerio.